Well, welcome to Mercy Hill Church. Um, normally, I'm on this side, and uh, this is it's just a huge honor uh, to be here this morning to communicate and just open up the Word and try to uh, cautiously but confidently work through the Word of God and uh, just be about it this morning. Are you guys ready? Good deal, good deal. Well, we're going to be... Um, in Amos 6, if you haven't been with us or if it's your first time, as Pastor Chris said, we are um, going through a series called Amos, a reminder that the lion roars. And um, we've, for, for, the, for the context of who Amos was speaking to, Amos was speaking to the people of Israel. There was a northern kingdom, a, a southern kingdom, and all around it were different kingdoms, different territories. You had Syria, you had us Syria, you had, um, you, you had uh, this place in, in Israel um, called uh, Samaria. So you have these, these people groups, God's people, he, he divided people up. Um, but for the context of where we're at, he'd, he'd been speaking specifically uh, to these kingdoms around. Well, now he begins in chapter 6 to speak to Israel specifically. He gets, and, and um, the Lord is speaking through Amos, and Amos is very intentional and very specific when it comes to how he's communicating and what he's communicating to the people of Israel. Um, so we, we have we have him giving these warnings in, in verse in verse six or in chapter six, excuse me. Um, and, and basically he's saying, Israel, your church attendance is great. You're my people. You're giving, but you're also stealing from the poor. You're also not listening to what the, the, the word of the Lord had commanded previously in the Torah and the and uh, previously in the Old Testament. You're not you're not sacrificing the correct way. And the biggest thing that Amos was upset with that was from the heart of God was, was their um, mishandling of the poor. Culturally, you either have really rich or really poor folk, right? And for Amos, he knew very well that these people of God were taking advantage of God's people, the least of these, the needy and the broken. Um, so he begins in chapter 6, and he, he just starts laying it out um, here, but the one, one thing, again, I admire the most about Amos is his ability to communicate with a culture that was full and fat of self-idolization. They were full and fat of self-prosperity, and they, and, and they were also full of self-reliance. This burdened Amos, this broke his heart, and he wanted nothing more for the people of God to be people of God. That, that, was, that was Amos's whole stirring up here, um, and, and I, it just, I, just, I just, again, admire Amos's specificity when he came and he, and he spoke. I love the zoo. Uh, we have a zoo pass. I am, I am the, um, the guest on the zoo pass, and we'll go to the zoo sometimes. And one of my favorite animals at the zoo is an okapi. Does anybody know what an okapi is? It's like, it's like God decided he was going to mix a giraffe and a zebra and a llama all together in one animal and said, here's your okapi, right? I was like... That, that, that's cool. I, just, I love the creativity. I love the stripes. I love, um, I love seeing the little howler monkeys howl. You know, I love seeing the rhinoceros, rhinoceri. And, you know, I, I just love, yeah, I, I make up a lot of words. So if you hear that, be like, yeah, that's in the Nick Dictionary. Um, but uh, the thing, the thing I, I, I do love also is the, the, the snake exhibit where they have all the, you know, the, the creepy, crawly reptiles. Um, and uh, to give you some context, I love how the Lord made rattlesnakes, right? Rattlesnakes have this really, really cool ability to coil up, to shake its rattler and go, I'm about to get you, right? So for the sake of everything and that's holy and pure and lovely, can you please do a for me to make me feel more comfortable? 
Wow, are we a Baptist church? What's going on here? Here we go. Speaking in now. Um, but my wife, uh, she, she grew up in South Jacksonville. By the way, my in-laws are here. I love you guys. David, thank you for being the best dad figure I've ever had in my life. Um, Sherry, you're awesome. Um, but um, she grew up in South Jacksonville, so she didn't see a lot of, you know, like rattlesnakes. We'd only see them at exhibits and zoos and stuff. But I grew up in South Georgia on a farm, and, you know, we, we, had, we had, I mean, armadillas, possums. Oh, we had these things, and for those that don't know what this is, I'll explain. Have you, has anybody ever heard of a polecat before? Right? Polecats? Yeah, those are skunks. You make them sound real fancy. Skunk. No, they're polecats, right? Um, and we used to hit them, and they'd get hit in front of the yard all the time and stink up the whole place. But um, Sorry, Peter. Um, but polecats. I lost my train of thought. Polecats. Oh, rattlesnakes. So um, Natalie and I, we were, we were in um, this little town uh, called High Springs where we did ministry. I have some friends from High Springs this morning. Great to see y'all. Um, but... Um, we lived on a, on a little farm uh, in High Springs, and uh, the owners of this, this farm, they began to tell stories about rattlesnakes and how they'd been on the farm and stuff and how they'd experienced rattlesnakes. And, I mean, as, as the story is going on, my wife, my beautiful freckle-faced beauty of a woman, I love you, uh, she, her face was like white as a ghost. Like, she was in running to be the next Casper, in, in, you know, like in, in Casper the ghost. So, like, she, she was petrified um, because she thought, bless her heart, that rattlesnakes only lived in Australia. And I had to reel it in and say, no, they live in Florida. They live in Yuli. Amen? They live in, in Yuli? Yeah. So they, they live in Yuli. Um, so, but the reality is that rattlesnakes live on the farm. And, and um, I just, I'm thankful for how God said, hey, rattlesnake, be generous enough to let people know you're about to get bit, right? They, they had this, let me see your, right? Man, you guys are great. Better than the first service. Come to the service every week. Um, but Amos was kind of like that rattlesnake. He was coiled up. He was frustrated with the people. And he was, he was shaking his rattler and saying, if you continue to live in your self-reliance and your self-prosperity, dangers to come. Right? These, these were rattlesnake warnings. And um, we, we start to read in verse 1 here. He says, woe to those that are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. And he continues that um, the notable, notable man of the first of the nations to whom the house of the Israel comes. Pass over to Kanal and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great and go down to the Gath of Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Um, Amos knew very well that the people of God felt at ease in Zion. Zion would be this, this, this word picture of their security of God being God's people. They were so secure that they were Christians. They were so secure that they grew up in church. They were so secure that they knew the Torah and that their parents went to give offerings and, and sacrifice at the temple. They were so secure. And in this, in this region, Samaria was a place of security, right? They had, they had great leaders that, 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 again, gave wine and, and, and good food and all this kind of stuff. And all along, it was, it was grapes from the poor. It was, it was food from the poor. But they, 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 they were so secure in their prosperity. We have to realize a rattlesnake warning in our own lives is that we, we place a lot of security in, in men and women, right? Wives may place security in their husbands, rightfully so. But if it's over God, rightfully wrong. 
We see, we see people placed in security. I mean, this time last year, it was absolutely crazy. If you're a Republican, you're a hate by the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you're a hate by the Liberal Party and the Tea Party and the Green Party and the A Party and the B Party. Like, everybody was so frustrated because they had their security in a man or a woman. Right? It, it, was, it was this the security. And, and Amos says, woe to you. Woe to you. This is a warning. Woe to you who place your security in man. And he says this. You are the house of Israel. You are God's people. Woe to you that place your dependence upon any man. And I promise no one on this earth was going to be a savior. No political party is going to change anything. No celebrity raising money for kids with disabilities. No man digging wells in Africa for children. No protest leader. No man ever. But we have to realize this truth. We have to realize that God is so gracious and generous to allow us to find security in him. Verse 3, again, 2 and 3, he talks about um, these, these two places. He talks about Hamath the Great and Gath of the Philistines. Um, he said these people had been so comfortable and complacent in their own lives that Amos had to remind them that the Gath and then the Hamath there, they had been overthrown by Assyria. These are regions of Syria and the, Philistine, the Philistines, and they had been overthrown by battle by the Assyrians. He reminded them that, hey, guess what? Philistine and Syria, they're much larger than Judah and Israel. And at any time, any moment, the Assyrians could come in and completely wreck you. You're taking refuge in a mountain. You're taking refuge in men. These Assyrians could wipe you out like that. God knew that the kings of Israel and Judah's hearts were far from him. And his desire was to have Amos warn them of the destruction that would come from living in complacency. And we have to realize this. Complacency is an insidious sin. Now, that sounds really intense because of this. It's based on lies, motivated by pride, and leads us to trust something other than God. If you become complacent in self, you trust something other than God. And, and the, 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 the truth is, the enemy, the devil, the, 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 the deceiver, who we deal with on a daily basis, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he will allow you to grow in complacency. He'll take a seed of complacency, put it in your little garden. He'll allow the, the sin of self to water it. And it'll grow into this beautiful flower that's actually pollinating and spreading sin everywhere else. Now, this isn't one of those, you know, feel-good touch messages. I'm sorry. But the reality is, is that complacency takes root, makes us flower. Listen, the alcoholic never sat there and jumped in complacency of ruining their families. Nor did the meth addict or the pornographer or the womanizer or the murderer. But you say, Nick, I'm not those things. At least today I'm not. What about the complacency of the heart to not give ourselves to the service of God? What about the complacency to ignore the Spirit of God when he has specifically nudged your heart day in and day out, maybe year after year, to speak the gospel to your lost family member at Thanksgiving? What about the complacency of, of, of not sharing the gospel with your bosses or your coworkers or even your children? Well, we're, we're Christians. We're good. We're secure in Samaria. God's desire is for us to be on a passionate pursuit of him. And if you are complacent, we must heed this warning. 
you're a child of God, sometimes the Lord sends something to completely shift and disrupt our complacency. It changes our perspective. And that's God's grace by being just another sweet, generous rattlesnake warning. Amos continues on in in verse 4. He says, Woe to those who lay in the beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on couches and eat lamb from the flock and calves from the midst of their stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp like David did, um, like David invented for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oil. Are you not grieved over the ruin of Joseph? Therefore, he shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the reverie of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. In summary, he says, woe to those that lay on the nice beds, that eat lambs from the poor man's flock and take the baby cows, bless God, Chick-fil-A, and sing idle songs, the harp. He gets to the root. He gets to the root. They were wealthy and they were affluent and they were able to do this. They were so prideful. It's so destructive when we look at God and we get so complacent and proud of what we do. You know, oh, I, I gave 15 shoe boxes. Praise God. Praise God. But was it out of, out of your pride? Well, we, you know, we went out and we, we served the poor food every day. Okay, praise God. Did somebody see you do that? Oh, well, we, we gave. Well, were, you, were you throwing your money down for people to hear? Their contentment was led by their pride. And what happens to the proud? They are opposed by God. Not just silently turned away, but it's, it's an opposition to God. Uh, C.S. Lewis would say that pride is an anti-God state of mind. Been there. I'm probably one of the most prideful people I know, right? Pride is a complete anti-state, anti-God state of mind. And here the Lord declares his judgment upon the house of Israel because of their pride. He even goes through and he points out in verse 6 that they were not even grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And when he speaks about the ruin of Joseph, he, he's then pointing them back to Samaria. Um, he, th- th- these people um, were in the, in the lineage of Joseph. And he says that these people, these leaders of Samaria, were so calloused towards their sins. And this was to illustrate that their hearts weren't even broken over their sin that their healing heartbreak had not yet happened, that their hearts were callous from the sin that they were in. We are self-seekers, right? You're a self-seeker. We are a self-seeking culture. I'm a self-seeker. And as I mentioned earlier, it's so easy to listen to the lies of the enemy. Just leaning closer and closer and closer and to be swooned by his patient pursuit to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10 would say. But may we be people who are actually broken over our sin. You know, sometimes we want five steps of how to be a better husband or how to make our kids smile or how to train our dog in 30 days when we come to church. But if we would just start at the beginning, being broken over our sin, being broken over our rebellion towards a holy and righteous God, when our hearts are genuinely broken over our sins and the sins of others, we begin to grow into the heart of the Lord. And our hearts are free our hearts are free to beat as, God heart, as God's heart beats. 
I've never met anybody that I've been in student ministry before. I'm now currently worship pastor, missions pastor here. And I've never met anyone in ministry that comes to me out of a broken, genuine heart of God saying, man, I messed up. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been heartbroken because of what God's done in my life. No, it's always turned into joy. It's always turned into a testimony. It's always been healing from them. And, and this is the healing heartbreak. When we, when we begin to have a healing heartbreak over our lives, we carry the torch of faith into some dark places. We begin to shine like lights in the darkness. We begin to come to this place, this church, this altar right here, and we cry out for the salvation of our children. Fathers, you actually weep over the sins of your children. Wives, your hearts are breaking because of the vice that's gripping your husband's heart. Children, students, you actually begin to pray for your families and your, and, your, and, your, and your future husbands, future wives. You begin to pray for your parents that are going through a mess, whether financially, relationally. We actually begin to pray and intercede and do what Jesus does for us on a daily. We pray for people. We are heartbroken and not over. This is not out of emotionalism. This isn't out of, of trying to make ourselves feel better. Or to be able to post on somebody's page, hey, praying for you today to make yourself like a holy Christian. No, it's out of a genuine heartbreak, and it makes us look more like Jesus because it's all about him. It's what he is doing. It's pursuing godliness, and it's loving what is pure. The healing heartbreak motivates us. Again, not out of emotional manipulation, but a genuine coming to the God and saying, I need you to take this. But what has the church, the Big C Church, done for us? In our Americanized consumer church culture, it's warped everything. We're consumers. We're not givers. We're seat warmers and not seat goers, takers, inviters. We actually begin to believe this lie that the enemy planted in us a long time ago, that the presence of God is not our prize. Christian, the presence of God, unity with the Father is your prize. Jesus Christ is your great reward. We have to lean into that. We come to church, throw a face on, throw a smile on, walk in here, hear some great truth, sing some awesome songs, meet some great people. And we never take the gospel outside these walls. We never take the gospel to our broken neighbors' houses. I'm guilty as the day is long on that. I'm guilty of that. The church has taught us to be victims. Well, we come into churches and we want pastors and deacons and elders to fix all of our problems because we're the victim and everything's happened to us. But what a healing heartbreak does to the victim, it, it, it charges them. It commands them to no longer live in the lavish of self-pleasure because you think you're important. Yes, you've had some bad stuff happen in your life, but God is greater. Yes, victim, the seed that you, that you, that you so believe that's taken root and, and grown a forest over your life, my God is that good. He can move mountains. He can tear down the trees of your self-contentment. He's a God that works all things together for our good, Romans 8. Amos continues in verse 7, and he says, They shall now be the first to go into exile, 
They shall be. When God says that they shall be something, that means he, he's not the God that says, oh, that's going to maybe happen. He says, if he says it shall be, he says, if, if the people of Israel continue down this road of contentment out of God's kindness, destruction will surely follow. Their ruin would be a divine kindness because he loves his children so much. Unless God graciously intervenes, our addiction to comfort will make us indifferent towards our sin, toward those that we love, and to those that we need to love. We cannot be comfortable, church. We cannot be comfortable. Children get really comfortable. I have a three-year-old. His name is Ezra, and uh, he, get, he gets really comfortable. He's really daring. He's in, the, he's in this, like, mode of I want to jump off everything and not think I'm going to break anything phase, right? And um, the other day we were at Joanne's and doing some, doing some Christmas shopping for Mama, and um, he was like, you know what? I'm, I mean, he didn't say this because he's three and he can't form real big sentences, but I, I knew he was thinking. He was like, you know what? When, we, when dad gets me out of the car, I am going to run towards Christmas because there was a big Christmas display, right? He's like, you know, but we're in, we're in a parking lot and Joanne's right there on 17. There's cars everywhere. Now, if I were to be like, okay, son, you go run after Christmas because it looks attractive. Three things could happen. You can get hurt, killed, or kidnapped because he's that dang cute. Somebody would just want to take him up, right? Now, my heart as a father, um, I could let him be like Adele and chase pavements. For those that don't know the Adele song, right? it goes, should I give up or should I just keep chasing pavements? I had to sing because I ain't sang all morning. But, um, right, like, like he, he could continue and just go chase those pavements. But no, 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 I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, make sure I watch all the YouTube videos of how to be a great dad because we don't get that type of preaching here. Um, but um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just, you don't even have to edit that one, Chris. That's good. But I, I warn him, I'm like, you know, Ezra, when you get out of the car, I need you to hold daddy's hand. I need you to listen, right? So what does he do? He doesn't listen, and he gets in this panic attack, and he's like, I want a donut. I'm like, no, we're going to go inside and buy mom's stuff. So he's, he's like trying to run. I'm like, okay, so I take him down. After watching my dad videos, I say, Ezra, if you let go of me, I'm going to give you a spanking. Do you under- this is the thing we do at the house. Do you understand? And he goes, understand. You know, and it's really sweet. And I'm like, you don't understand. So he, said, he says, understand. So I've also um, began this new thing where I'm like, okay, to give him some responsibility because he needs to be learning and all kind of stuff, whatever. And I, I put his hand in my pocket. And I'm like, okay, I need you to walk with me with your hand in my pocket, giving him kind of like a liberty but giving him responsibility all at the same time. So we're walking, we're walking, and what do you know? Boom, he's gone. I'm like, Ezra, get back here. And what do I do? I whip that boy's tail, right? I got to let him know I am in charge. I told you not to do something, and you went against what I was doing. Um, oh, and sorry, we spank our kids um, and our dogs sometimes. <laughs> sorry, dog lovers. I love my dog, but different story. Sidetrack. Let me get back. So I, I give him a spanking, and, and, I, and I let him know, you know, Ezra, I love you. I don't want you to get hurt, killed, stolen. I, I don't want these things to happen and it, and it breaks his heart, and he cries, and he cries, and he cries, and he takes a while to get over things like his daddy. And, like, you know, like, I, it just, it just it takes me a while to get over things, okay? I'm okay. I'm good now. Um, but it takes him a while to calm down. And he's healed. And something in his heart happens where he then grabs my pocket and is the best 
thing I've seen all day, right? He's walking along, and, you know, I'm like, look with your eyes, not your hands. You know, like, it's, it's just this whole thing. And, and, and it caused him to let him know, like, I love you. I get down, and I'm like, Ezra, we do this because we love you. We do this because you, we love you. And it's, it's, it's just like God in his divine kindness to be so gracious to discipline us, to, 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 to shake things up in our lives when we are, are chasing after complacency, to say, no, 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 I know what's best for you. You may have to be disciplined because you're not listening to me, but I know what's best for you. Sometimes people are like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know when God is speaking. I, 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 I just want God to speak to me. I'm in this troublesome time in my life. Start reading your Bible out loud, and you'll start hearing him speak. It's, it's one of those things where you take it and you, and you say it's out of God's divine kindness due to our lack of comprehension of what will, be destru- what, what, of what will bring destruction is what brings mercy. It's purely God's mercy on our lives. And we, we look at this merciful mess that he then talks about. He's warning these people these things will come. And mercy has a funny way of awakening danger. Mercy has a really crazy way of awakening danger. Uh, this time last year, um, my, 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 my adopted dad, he, he's just like this crazy, crazy guy. And he decided that it was going to be best um, last Thanksgiving for him to take a scooter. Now, this, this man is like 6'2", easy 280, like big dude. He decides to take a 10-year-old scooter and bomb dive a hill, Right? And, you know, him, him and my, my daughter, mom, they're just getting it, and it's fun, and it's awesome. And all of a sudden, he's going down and poof, crashes, hits his head, unconscious, craziest Thanksgiving I've had all my life. But through all that, he's better now. He, he had a, he had a um, traumatic brain injury. But, but we realized that was God's mercy. Mercy has a funny way of awakening our danger. And God's mercy has a divine way of showing us what we deserve apart from salvation. Amos finishes up chapter 6, starting in verse 8. It says, The Lord God has sworn by himself and declares the Lord and the God of hosts. When God swears by himself, he means bidness. He says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver him up to the city and all that is within it. And if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die. And he goes on, and, and he, he, there's, there's, a, there's a, a series of how you bury somebody. And basically, they're saying, hey, when these people die, don't even say anything because we don't even want to mention the name of God. These were God's people saying they don't want to mention his name. And he says this in verse 11, For behold, the Lord commands the great house to be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks, or does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into woodworm. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Canaan for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Libo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. God's desire is to take his mercy and by his grace and mercy, fuse it up with our disobedience, our mess-ups, and create this beautiful, merciful mess. He speaks of the pride that's there in this house, and he goes in and he reminds them again that the Assyrians, if they continue to live the way that they do, will come in, overtake Samaria, invade them, 
they will destroy every house, every dollhouse, every doghouse. He prophesies that they would be struck down. So Amos, being so specific, Amos was a farmer. He, he, just, he just spoke how he knew how to. As a, as a last-ditch illustration, he says in verse 12, Do horses run on rocks, or does one plow there with oxen? When he, when he pointed to there contextually, there, there was a body of water that he was speaking to when he, speak, when he was speaking to the people. He's like, hey, rocks, or horses can't run on rocks, and oxen will never be able to create a field and a lake and a river and an ocean. There is no life that's going to come through that. All that work, all that strength, all the fortitude they thought they had with themselves, their, their pride, their self-strength, their self-reliance was useless. The strength of self is useless. Well, I'm, I'm going to push through this. By whose power? Because my heart, my flesh will fail. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to get myself to that place by whose strength? Because my heart, my flesh will fail. God is my portion and strength forever. The strength that were needed to, 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 to plow the field with the oxen would be useless. The strength of self is useless. The people of Amos were so proud of the achievements and confident that no one would be able to overthrow them. No one would be able to defeat them. That Amos kind of takes a jab and he says, guys, you're rejoicing in Lodabar. This Lodabar is the literal word for nothing. It means nothing. He says, you're rejoicing in Lodabar, and that's exactly what God thought of their pre-victory win. You know those guys that get the tattoos of the Super Bowl winners already, and then their team loses? It was kind of like that. Like, hey, Hesiac, joke's on you. You're rejoicing in nothing, and God thinks that you're rejoicing in nothing because you're not rejoicing in him. And they, they, they were boasting in their, their own victories and their own Self. Now, as a believer, we have something to boast in, right? Like people, are like, oh, you don't don't be boastful. No, I'm, I'm a boast in my Lord Jesus every day, right? And I, I, when I when I was in high school, I, I turned 17, and um, I was I became a believer then also. And um, every day in in my English class, I would be a Catholic, me as a new believer in Christ, a Mormon and a Jehovah Witness, and we would all come together at the end of English class and have theological debates, right? We're 17 years old, full of knowledge, knowing everything in the world. And, um, you know, I had been boasting about Jesus. It was great. It was awesome. And I was telling them, you know, what I knew about God and the Bible and texting my dad like, hey, what does this mean? You know, like trying to, trying to get all my answers and, and let them know, I know what's up. I was boasting in self. Um, but I, I, at the at the the clip of the conversation, this one girl said to me, and, and this has stuck with me for the, for the rest of my life, because I've, I've heard this argument before when it comes to um, people and, and having conversations about Jesus, and, you know, they're not believers, and, you know, they don't understand why you are. Um, she said, you know what, Nick? This was her final argument with me. You just use Jesus as an ethical crutch because you're too weak. Well, yes, ma'am, you're correct. You know, like, it was one of those moments, like, I was like, you know what? He's not just my crutch. 
He's the paramedic that comes on the scene of my crash in my life. He is, he is the guy that, that, that brings me back to life with that machine that goes, Shh, you know, I don't know what that is called. But like, it, he, he does that. He, he's the physician. He's the machinery. He's the doctor. He's the life giver. And he's the one that makes me have life. Yes, he's, he's actually more than an ethical crutch. I mean, he's my life. And that's what Amos was trying to say here. Listen, all that boasting, all that strength, it's for naught. Reality is God is so gracious to allow us to depend upon him. A humble dependence on God is the only guarantee of his help and blessing. A humble dependence on God is the only guarantee of his help and blessing. The reality is, is that as, as Christians, we have been brought to life through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Colossians would say that he brought us from death into this beautiful thing called life because Jesus is a way, truth, and life. There is no way to the Father. There is no way to heaven. There is no way except through Jesus. And, and nowadays, that, that, that's going to make some people mad and have you retweeted and, and cussed at and rocks thrown at. But I'm going to continue to boast, boast in Jesus Christ Listen, Amos isn't standing with, with the people there, and I don't stand here this morning trying to help illuminate rattlesnake warnings or talk about healing heartbreaks or paint this beautiful Bob Ross picture of God's mercy for the sake of us walking out of here and feeling better as, as Christians. I, I don't sit here trying to, trying to say, hey, this is what Amos said. Get it right. No, I, I do this because I have an invitation. I have an invitation is to heed the warning. Be brokenhearted over sin and the sin of others. That you would come down to this altar, that even this morning, that you would get a little bit uncomfortable and out of socket and out of place and come down and pray for your husband, children, grandmother, whoever, that you would be a people of prayer, that you would intercede on behalf, that you would be so broken of your sin that for, for those that may not be a believer, that today you would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Christ, by his grace and his mercy, offers us life in him. Final warning this morning. It's truthfully, apart from Christ, you will perish. Apart from Christ, you will perish. And the healing heartbreak aspect of that, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That's that's heartbreaking. That God himself would die a real death. We are so desensitized in our culture that we we even forget that that our Savior died a bloody death. His beard pulled out. His face disfigured. His his body pierced. He died a real death while you were in rebellion, while I was in rebellion, and offers us this beautiful thing of mercy. Mercy. That if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. No takesy backsies, no give it back. You will be saved. You are smothered, covered, fried by the grace of Jesus Christ. Come on, like, that's exactly how it is. Apart from Christ, you will perish. Christ died for us while we were sinners. But the best news, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. This morning, I, I invite you. To repent, to praise, to cry, to be heartbroken, to rejoice. The gospel 
demands a response. You respond. Let's pray.